Welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast, a guide for those interested in hearing more about hunting, fishing, and other paths to eating more responsibly. Now, here's your host, Mark Norquist. Hello, and welcome to this second episode of the Modern Carnivore Podcast. Before I jump into today's topic, I just want to mention the website for Modern Carnivore, where we've just put some information up about events here in 2018 that are going to be held called the Modern Carnivore Experience. These half-day retreats are a way to really introduce people to the idea of hunting, fishing, and foraging as ways to get food on the table. And people from different backgrounds and interest levels come to these events, but really have a great opportunity to ask questions and explore what this whole idea of getting outdoors and and being uh, responsible for your food source is all about. And so if that sounds interesting to you, go check out the events page at modcarn.com forward slash events. So today I am joined by Robin Migliarini in today's discussion. And Robin's got a really interesting story to share. She grew up in Boston and uh, very much in an urban environment with not much connection to the outdoors and didn't really know anybody who hunted. She actually became a vegetarian and ultimately a vegan, but started having some questions about that and her desi- but her desire to be connected to and responsible for the food that she eats really kindled an interest in actually exploring the idea of becoming a hunter and so she's got a great story to share i think you're going to you're going to really like hearing it and uh thanks for listening okay we are here in stevens point wisconsin with Robin Migliorini. How did I do? Very good. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> okay, good. Um, and uh, Robin just gave a presentation here at the University of Wisconsin in Stevens Point on her journey to becoming a hunter. And I believe the title is Giving Hunting a Shot, correct? Yes, that's right. Excellent. So um, great to great to see you again. We met a few years ago out at a BHA rendezvous. Yeah, it's and fun to be able to reconnect now here in Wisconsin, which is <laughs> places, pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Abs- absolutely. So I met you and your husband, Nick, when you started the website, <clears throat> excuse me, Modern Hunters. Uh, yes. Very similar to modern carnivore. So I had to reach out to you guys and say, hey, that's awesome. So um, what I wanted to do uh, in this podcast was really just learn a little bit more about your journey into the world of hunting. And you shared that both yesterday in Madison and today here in Stevens Point. Um with a lot of people who were very interested to hear that story. And so I guess maybe giving even a little bit more of a, of a, of a background or context, um, why don't you, you share, share with, share with the audience and, and, and with me, you know, where did you grow up? I know a little bit of yeah. that, but, but tell me a little bit about your upbringing. Yeah, of course. So I grew up, um, just outside of Boston, Massachusetts in the suburbs, actually not far outside the city. And I had a pretty, I don't know, stereotypical East Coast, urbanite, suburbia upbringing. Um, 
you know, Boston was sort of the, the cultural hub in the center of it all. And we spent a lot of time doing things that you do when you live in the suburbs, like playing kickball and going to the playground. And, you know, maybe an outdoor activity would be going to the beach uh, or going to a lake or something like right. that. Um, but it the, the whole concept of really being out there in the wilderness and especially the whole concept of hunting was just really not present um, in, in the world that I grew up in. Did any, anybody in your family or anybody in your social network hunt at all? No. Okay. Um, wow. Not at all. I didn't know a single hunter, to my knowledge. I mean, it's possible that maybe there was a hunter out there who was secretly hunting and no one knew. Um, but no, I, I had really no, hunting wasn't on the radar at all. I didn't have any exposure to it. It just wasn't a part of the world. It wasn't, I don't think it's something that probably even ever crossed my mind. Right, right. So, so you, you grow up in this, in this relatively urban environment, East coast. Um, and, um, and you get into high school, you go off to college, sort of still that same environment, very urban. And where, where did you go to school? I went to Wellesley College for okay. my undergrad. So that's also in the Boston area, not yeah. too far outside, also in the suburbs. Um, it's kind of kind of its own little cultural world. It's right. a little bit it's a little bit further outside the city, but it's still very much close to that metropolitan area. Um, small liberal arts school, and yeah. So do you, when you were younger, did you, uh, you know, you talked about playing kickball, whatever. Did you ever go camping? Did you go to camp and, and do outdoor activities at all? Never went camping, never went to camp. Uh, my family did have a cottage up on a lake in New Hampshire. That was, you know, my grandparents had that. And so as kids, we would go up there with, you know, my grandparents and my parents and me and my brother uh, and my aunt, and we would spend a lot of weekends up there. So I had some exposure to that. We would, you know, go boating and go swimming, but it was really all centered on our little cottage, like the tiny little waterfront spot that we had and just sort of, uh, I don't know, lake recreation. Right, right. Um, lots of people around. It, it, it was very different, I think, than sort of a more wilderness lakes experience. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, here in the Midwest, especially Wisconsin, Minnesota, um, it's it's very much cultural to have that cottage up north. And... Um, and uh, but and that would be an opportunity for people to get exposure to fishing most most mm -hmm. most frequently, um, but that wasn't necessarily part of of, of that experience in, in your cottage life. I actually did have a little bit of exposure okay. to fishing. My my grandfather was a fisherman. Okay. Um, I think he was pretty passionate about it. Maybe especially when he was a little bit younger, but he still fished when when we were up there. And I had a fishing pole, and I would sometimes fish, but it was always catch and release. So there was no conception, I think, ever that that fish could really be your food. Right. Um, Fly so, fishing or? Uh, nope. Just, okay. just, just whatever surf fishing and out on a boat, but just always catch and release. Yeah. Yeah. yeah catch, you know, bass mostly, things okay. like that. Yeah. And so to me, I, I never really got the appeal of it that much. I knew how to cast a rod. I'd been taught that. And it was kind of fun to go out sometimes with my grandfather, you know, around sunset and spend some time in the boat and cast. But I, yeah, it didn't really... I didn't really connect with it because I, I think maybe I didn't really see the point of it as much. Like it was a leisurely activity, but it wasn't something that really grabbed me.
Okay, so you uh, had a little bit of fishing when you were a kid, but always catch and release, so you, ne- you never were filleting fish? And, no. And, and oh, no, never. <laughs> um, so you get into college. You, I think you, you do start having some camping experiences, right? Or, did, or backpacking, or what, did you do something outdoor-related, I thought? Yeah, later in college, sort okay. of the second half of college, um, when I met Nick, who is now my husband, and he introduced me to backpacking. Okay. And so at that time, I, I had, I had also gone on a couple of camping trips with some friends, but you know the typical car camping where you kind of you're, the point of going is just so that you can go hang out in the woods and right. spend some time with your friends. And so backpacking was a really different experience of that, much more intense, um, much more you're really out there, and and much more challenging. My, my first backpacking trip was I mentioned this in the talk tonight was like a total disaster. <laughs> yeah, share a little bit about that. Yeah, so I was. Uh, I guess you'd say I was unprepared. Um, I ended up, you know, I'd never hiked in my hike, new, brand new hiking boots, that kind of a thing. Right, right. Horrible blisters. blisters. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, it was a really hot day in California. I actually ended up getting heat exhaustion on the hike in, <laughs> and so it was, it was pretty miserable. So you obviously didn't want to do it again after that. I actually, I loved it. <laughs> uh, that that day was a, a, a tough day, but in general, I, I, the rest of the trip was a blast, and I really liked being out there. It was a different experience of not having to be around a ton of other people, not being in a campground that felt like it was a manufactured thing and just being able to really be out there and for it to be really quiet um, and sort of have that peaceful time. So at that point, you're getting exposed to wilderness. Where where does it go from there? What's the next step in the journey to ultimately becoming a hunter? Yeah, the biggest, I think the biggest piece of that transition was the food piece. Yeah. So as I was gaining these outdoor experiences and at the same time I was starting to think a lot more about where my food came from, um, what sort of food I wanted to eat. So I'd actually been vegetarian for a number of years already by by this time. So by the time I had started backpacking, I was already a vegetarian, mostly for environmental reasons, actually. I'd mm-hmm. learned about the industrial food system, um, all the negative environmental consequences that came along with it, local food, food ethics, all of that, you know, reading Michael Pollan's Omnivore's Dilemma, right. reading Fast Food Nation, reading those things and getting exposed to these ideas that were certainly less than pleasant. Um, and it was the vegetarianism, actually, that ended up leading hunting as strange as that can sound (laughs) yeah exactly i'm sure on the surface people are like what yeah (laughs) but it's a great story do you um did have you read tovar cerulli's the mindful carnivore by any chance yes we actually read that after we had started hunting um for a little while and we kind of thought because later on i also started eating a vegan diet because you know vegetarianism wasn't restrictive enough (laughs) so why not why not do more um and so I think we kind of thought like, oh man, going from vegan to hunting, that must be such an unusual thing. And then lo and behold, we find um, that book and we're like, oh, well, someone's already written this book. <laughs> They've already done it. Like we're behind the curve. So Right. But there are others out there like us yeah, having this similar journey. That was a huge moment to yeah. realize, oh, we are not alone. And this is not, this idea isn't completely crazy. Like we we haven't lost our minds. Other people think the same way that we're thinking about this. Right, right. Okay, so you go from urbanite to going outside a bit at the same time. You become vegetarian, ultimately turn to vegan. Mm-hmm. Um, 
what was the inflection point? There must have been something, something that happened or, and or a thought that came in. That, and wh- what was that? Yeah, I think the real thing was some sort of message my body was trying to send me, despite all the things that my brain wanted yeah. my body to be doing. So I, this diet that I had embarked on was a very intentional thing. I thought that I was really doing the right thing and being sustainable. And like, what, what would it, what would your daily diet consist of when you, when you were at that, at the, at the height of, of being a vegan? Cause I, yeah. I don't even know what, what, what exactly That's that would a great entail. Question. Yeah. Let's see. I would say, you know, breakfast was probably not that far off of what a lot of people eat for breakfast. So usually like oatmeal with fruits and nuts and maybe soy milk or something like that. Uh, a lot of things that we were eating, we certainly were eating a lot of, a decent amount at least, of the sort of fake meat substitutes like soy chorizo um, <laughs> and like the sausages that are made of, I don't know, not meat. How do they taste? When you haven't had meat for a long time, yeah. they actually start to taste they pretty good. They start to taste you pretty good. You forget. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's totally doable. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'd also do a lot of things like, you know... Um, marinate tofu and then bake it and have that with rice and vegetables or um, have pasta dishes with, you know, some sort of vegetarian right. protein or lots of things, lots of things with beans. Beans were a major feature of the diet, I would say. <laughs> so there are some side effects. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you could say that. <laughs> so, I mean, like Tovar talks about in terms of just the health aspect, I think, and, and, and his body telling him of, of just you're missing something. I mean, do you feel like that was it? Like you just felt there was, it was a, 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 a avoid in a certain nutrient areas that that your body was saying I need something that I'm not getting absolutely and it was so weird because I would have these cravings but not for anything in particular you know sometimes you're like oh man I'm really craving chocolate I'm really craving french fries or something I had these cravings that had no ostensible target like I didn't know what it is that I wanted and I had not eaten meat for so long I didn't even remember really what it tasted like so I wasn't craving the taste of a thing, but I just felt like I could eat all the tofu in the world or eat all the vegetables or eat all the peanut butter or whatever. And yet somehow this craving wouldn't go away. And we're talking like months of just this feeling every day of like, I feel kind of hungry or something feels not right. And I can't figure out what it is. So how long, how long from, from the, the time that you started, uh, your journey of, of being a vegetarian, um, to this point when your body started telling you how, what, how long of a time frame was that? Are we talking months? Are we talking years? Are we talking? Yeah, what? we're talking years. So probably let, let me think, uh, it would have been at least, uh, probably three years until that started happening. And okay. it's something that I tried to ignore for a really long time. So yeah. something that I acknowledged, but sort of let continue to happen for quite a while because I felt like I didn't have a good answer for it. Right, right. Um, I actually continued to be vegetarian or vegan for many years after that and just tried to find, well, maybe I need to increase the amount that I'm eating X food, or maybe I yeah. need to, you know, stop eating all this weird fake meat and just like make it all from scratch. And so I tried a lot of things. <laughs> uh, would you eat, would you take supplements to try to try to, you know, get what you're not getting in the food? Or were you not at that point of like just thinking that it just was lacking? In yeah, there or I was pretty convinced that I had a balanced diet. I seemed to be eating all yeah. the right foods in the right amount. So I wasn't going crazy with any sort of supplements, but I eventually got to this point where I was just like, okay, 
I think something needs to change and my body is trying to tell me something and my body doesn't really care whether or not this is a, like an environmentally friendly thing to do, but I think it would like to try to eat meat, eat meat again. <laughs> so, so your husband, Nick, is there with you, right? He's also vegan, so yeah. you're doing this together, we which are doing is this good. Together. Okay. okay, so do you approach him and say, uh, I I think I need to eat meat or what, like what, how did that, how did that transpire? I actually think he might've been the one to first bring it up Okay. where okay. he would start, he would ask me like, do you feel this way? Yeah. Are you feeling more tired? Are you feeling And I think he was noticing it more from this um, sort of energy and fatigue okay. perspective or, or being able to recover from exercise perspective. And I was feeling it more. I was like, I don't really feel that as much, but I have these cravings though. <laughs> <laughs> and so we both were having kind of an analogous experience, but we were noticing it. it the manifestation, I think, was a little bit different for yeah. both of us. But we yeah. started to be like, well, hmm, I wonder if this is linked. I wonder if there's something going on here. Right, right. So you both talk about it. You're like, I think we need meat in our diet. Yeah, basically. Okay. Exactly that. So you came, you came to that crossroads and now you've got a choice of like how you're going to proceed then, right? Exactly. So it's like, and okay, so well. so how does that go? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, we could go back to getting meat at the grocery store. At that point, that was like so far from what we had been doing that felt it, it very abrupt to go right. ahead and do that, especially because we were the, all of the reasons that we were vegetarian and vegan for in the first place. You know, we didn't really want to participate if we didn't have to. Yeah. We didn't want to participate in the, the sort of large food system that had all sorts of problems with it. And going, so the going, grocery store meant going back to that to us, I think, at that time. Right. And, and, and so, I mean, the original entry into, into being vegetarians and then going to vegans was around a, a feeling of just moral responsibility responsibility with the food system. Absolutely. Is that, is yeah, that it? And like, exactly. we're going to take responsibility and this is the most responsible way is to become a vegetarian yeah. and then ultimately a vegan. Yeah. It seemed to be one of, in fact, kind of the easiest ways, at least from our perspective, yeah. the easiest ways to just have a more sustainable diet. We'd read all these books and that's what they'd say. Like, well, if you want to find a way to improve your own diet, here's what you got to do. All you have to do is stop eating this, this, and this. And we're like, well, um, so we, I think we just decided initially that we wanted to try it as an experiment. I yeah. think part of me wanted, to, if I wanted to know, could I do it? Like yeah. it was almost like a personal challenge. Like, could I handle being a vegetarian? Right, right, right. Exactly. I, well, I can imagine. I mean, I can't imagine how big of a challenge that would be. I mean, I, I, I couldn't do it. Um, you know, I mean, it'd be re that's a that's a huge mountain to climb to try to to try to. I think any type of restrictive diet. I just think about the social impact of of being out with people, and 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 having to think through. Um, each one of the settings you're going to be in and to say, how, how am I going to feed myself? And I have to be prepared and I have to bring my own food or, or make sure it's the right kind of place, what have you. I think in college, it was actually a pretty easy place to start this because like where I went to school, we had a whole, one whole dining hall that was like a vegetarian dining hall. So it was pretty easy. Wow. And someone was making the food for you. Did right. you just show up? And so that's, I was able to do that early on. And then eventually you get so used to it that by the time that you're out in the world and making your own decisions, going to restaurants, it's sort of, it's become second nature. You don't really remember not eating that way anymore. Right. So I was surprised how easy it was actually. Yeah. Interesting. So, so you decide you're going to start eating meat. Um, 
you think about grocery store, uh, no. we know we can't yeah. do that. Uh, what, and then you're like, okay, what are the other ways? Or I Basically. Mean, and so, so, I mean, was there a moment though when you thought, I mean, that's a pretty big concept to, to be open to if you've never hunted and you didn't have it in your background at all mm-hmm. to consider that you had you ever owned a gun? Oh no. No. I never. I don't know that I'd really seen one in person. Maybe say, except for like on a police officer. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so I mean, that's a that's a daunting thought, also, right? Yeah. I mean, just to to think that that you're you're like, okay, I'm I'm gonna pick up a weapon and actually kill an animal so I can eat it. Yeah. That's, that's a big idea. So I mean, do you go right into it, or do you? Do you bite around the edges of that idea a little bit? Like, did you see something where like, oh, okay, or what, what, talk about that a little bit? We did try to think about the the maybe easier or more straightforward options. Like, well, what we could just get some meat from a local farmer or a rancher. Um, and that sounds pretty good. They're probably, you know, maybe doing things a little bit better than these giant agricultural industrial systems. The problem with that, though, is that we felt like, well, this is probably going to be better, but there was still this element of not knowing, really. Like, we couldn't really know what was going on behind the scenes. And I think Nick was experiencing this, too, but I'll talk about, at least from my perspective, that there was this element of detachment that I think I was a little bit uncomfortable with that, where part of me really wanted to know and maybe more intimately experience what it would really mean to eat a creature that had once been living. So to experience that death and see exactly what that was like and to take responsibility for that in some way, I felt like I wanted to throw myself into that, that if I had to eat this way, I needed to know that I actually could do everything that it took to actually do that. And so you and you and Nick are talking about this. Well, what if we started to hunt? And you're sort of both exploring that idea together, yes. right? Which is is great to have a companion to be able to talk that through. Yeah, so helpful. Did you uh, did you did you bring it up to a friend or anyone and say, you know, Nick and I are thinking about hunting and have some reactions that you know were tough or or like where people are like, I don't get what you're thinking, you know, or anything <laughs> like that. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I don't know that we talked about it so much with any friends early right. on. I think we were we were still so conflicted about the whole thing and I still I still felt like I wasn't sure if this was something I, I wanted to admit yeah. to my friends. Right. I mean, right. I, certainly, you know, my friends were in a pretty similar position to me and that they all were sort of similarly grew up in urban environments and probably didn't have any exposure to hunting. So I wasn't sure how they were going to react. So in these really early phases when we were just sort of playing around with the idea, I think we really kept it to ourselves. <laughs> right. And that, and that um, doesn't surprise me. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't until we really decided like, okay, we're going to start this. We're going to eventually, we're going to, we're going to take the hunter education class. Okay. I think at that point we started to tell some people about what we were doing and they're all actually pretty understanding. I didn't have any friends that were like, oh, yeah, me too. Um, but I also didn't have anyone that seemed to, you know, be too freaked out or perturbed about right. the idea. Right. That's I think great. when I explained why we were doing yeah. it, everyone understood that it made sense. They were just that's like, wow, that sounds like a lot to go through. That's great to hear. That's awesome. Um, so, I mean, was that where did you have the idea or know that like like just a uh, – an, an orientation class, a firearm safety class was was one of the first steps or did you have to, did you start searching around, you know, what, how, how did that, how did that process go? 
Yeah, I think Nick had started looking into it, and he he said early on, he's like, okay, so if we're going to do this, we need to take this hunter education class. And his rationale was like, okay, you know, whether or not we're going to decide to hunt or not, we should just do this class first, Um, which was great. In retrospect, I'm so glad we did that. We took hunter education years before we actually ended up going out into the field. There was a big gap between us doing that and us actually starting to hunt. And I'm glad that we did that because it, it laid a little bit of a foundation, enough that I started to learn about firearms, like guns started to become a a little bit more demystified. And that made me feel comfortable enough to actually be, feel ready to go and try to shoot a gun myself. And that was something that I needed a lot of time for, I think myself to get comfortable with and to learn. And so that starting that early, I think was really, really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Did, um, did you do the course online or in class? In class. In class with a bunch of kids or adults? Oh no! It was mostly adults, That's actually. Great. There were there were definitely kids there, yeah. but um, we were, certainly weren't the only adults in the room. So that was that was nice. I like hearing that because a lot a lot of people for you know in 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 recent years have had experiences where you know a lot of those programs traditionally were focused on kids because that's you know just culturally okay. This is what you do. You come up in a hunting family. You go do your hunter education. Uh, but more and more adults are are wanting to take those courses, and it's it's great to hear that more are are in those classes. Yeah, it was it was actually a really good experience. I mean, that was so many years ago now, but um, it was like mul- multiple days of like the whole day kind right. of a thing. So it was a pretty it was a pretty long and fairly in depth in Cal- class. California. Yeah, California. Okay. And you did you um, so did you conclude with a range day and get to shoot in that or not in that class? We or did not? not shoot in that class. Okay. Um, no, but I felt at that, by the time that the class was done, I at least felt that I knew all the mechanical pieces mm-hmm. of the guns that I might actually want to shoot, that yeah. it was like, okay, I, th- I think that's not actually that hard. Yeah. I had this idea. I, I didn't know anything about guns, really. Um, to me, they're just sort of like this mysterious kind of scary machine that maybe if you touched it the wrong way, it could kill you. Like that's, it, it sounds ridiculous, but that's how, I think that's, that's a, all I really knew. I think that's a common, common feeling. Yeah. 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 Um, so learning that it actually is a pretty fairly simple mechanical system and that it works one particular way and yeah. is pretty reliable and how it works that way was you know pretty reassuring actually like oh okay I can do that there's right. a few simple rules I think I can follow those rules I think I'll be okay yeah no that's great so so you go through hunter education um you said it was years until you hunted it was so, so like how did that go after that you know you and Nick are talking you're like okay that was interesting yeah that was interesting um but there was so much that we did. Hunter education is really such a basic introduction, and there was so much that we didn't know. So we took hunter ed pretty early, and then I think the next phase is what I, I think about is like we were just exploring. We were just trying to gather information. So we would like go on YouTube and try to watch videos. Like For example, I, I was really concerned about how I would react to seeing an animal die. Like right. I, I'd never seen that before. I, I don't have any firsthand experience with death. So that was one thing that I was interested in in that those early phases was like, okay, I'm going to find someone's hunting videos on YouTube where they show the shot and see what happens, what the animal looks like if it's been hit and when it goes down. And I just, I needed to see yeah. that and start to sort of, I don't know, process what that yeah. looked like and how, uh, how I was going to react to that. How, how did you react the first time you saw that? 
It was a little bit jarring. Um, I I was relieved actually to see in a lot of these videos how quickly the animal would go down. That mm -hmm. there didn't, if the shot was good, yeah. the suffering seemed to be really brief. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I'd worried about. I didn't really understand what to expect. Like, do you shoot the animal and then it, you know, lays on the ground for 10 minutes, right. you know, writhing in pain? Or yeah. is this something that's over pretty quickly? Um, and the videos I saw seemed, in general, yeah. <laughs> like I said, if the shot is good, it does seem to be over pretty quickly. And so I was able to watch a lot of those. And I don't want to say desensitize myself to it, but just sort of uh, be prepared for what that would really actually um, look like if I were to experience it. Well, I think y you mentioned earlier tonight in, in your presentation, and uh, and I've often felt this, I, th I think in modern society, we've insulated ourselves from the natural cycle of life, which includes death. Mm -hmm. And we don't look it straight in the face. And that is that is the thing with hunting is is it's pure honesty and you are you are taking responsibility and 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 it's not always easy. I mean most most hunters I know, and this includes men and women who have hunted for decades and decades, um still feel conflicted when when they take an animal and 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 understand the complex feelings that go around it because it is it isn't an easy an easy thing to to do but it's an important it's an important thing if you're gonna if you're gonna eat meat absolutely yeah. so i took the approach of trying to ease myself into it it's like well if i can if i can watch it on a video and be okay with it then then okay maybe i can be okay with doing it in person and kind of taking this in a in a stepwise sense um, because it wasn't that I, I wasn't philosophically opposed to the idea that something would have to die in order for me to eat it that I was yeah. actually pretty fundamentally okay with that idea mm -hmm. um, but I wasn't sure whether or not I could handle it mm -hmm. like was I was I going to like I said like was I going to freak out or would would it be something that I could tolerate and something that I could accept as part of being an omnivore. Um, one thing I talked about tonight in the talk is, you know, the idea that centuries ago it would have been so absurd for people to be having a conversation like this of like, how are you going to feel about an animal <laughs> watching it? Are yeah. you going to be okay about that? Like, yeah. people were so, you know, it was it was so normal to have this intimate firsthand experience with the death of animals and also the death of other people. Right. Um, and like you said, we've now become, our society has set it up so that most of that happens behind closed doors and we don't really need, you know, I guess we have the luxury of not needing to see it or think about it. And even a lot of the food we buy at the grocery store is so literally and figuratively detached from the body that it came from you know like the the chicken boneless skinless yeah. nugget form it you can totally forget that that was once a creature that had a life and yeah. you know a personality of its own and I, I don't think the answer is to is removing the animal from the equation and the death component of it either like what's going on right now I don't know if you've you've been following any of these um uh, companies that are starting up where they're manufacturing meat in labs. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah. I don't know a lot about it, but it's it's an interesting concept. It, it really is, and, and and I think maybe it's it's uh, I think maybe it's it's a component within the food system as part of the solution in the future. I, I don't think we should call it meat, though. I think we should call it something else. And um, 
And, and I think we have to be really careful by, by dis, disassociating ourselves from the natural world and, and trying to say, oh, look, at we could just manufacture it now. We don't have to have pain, death, suffering, and, and, and we've created a whole new life cycle. I, I don't know. It, it, I think it's got bigger implications. But uh, Yeah, I have to wonder about how that's going to be received by right. our larger society. And, and maybe it is the case that a couple of generations from now that that is the norm. Yeah. And that, that yeah. would be pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it really would. They're they're talking about you'll have your meat machine on your counter in your home, and you go. And, <laughs> you know, it just it sounds yeah. a little it sounds a little odd, a little little. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I wanted to have a connection to the process. I had read, for example, in um, Omnivore's Dilemma, yeah. Michael Pollan traces the origin of all these different meals and their ingredients. And for one of the things, he he actually does go on a hog hunt. I think he goes on a couple of hog hunts. I think he does. Yeah. Um, and I had read that book at sort of the, the peak of me thinking about food ethics and what I wanted mm-hmm. to do with my own food. This was it took a few years before I even thought about hunting, but that at least planted the seed in my head that that's an option, that someone even with no experience can go out. You know, he was with people who were right. mentoring him, but yeah. could go out, get this food from the wild, turn it into a meal, and, and that that was an option. Right. And I remember reading that and thinking like, man, that's really cool. Like what he did, <laughs> he really experienced something unique. And that always stayed with me of like, hmm, that's a level of connection that there is something about that that speaks to me. Yeah, so I was gonna say, I was I was wondering, you know, what what was when you say that's really cool. That's I could just see you had this emotional like, wow, that's cool. What is it that was cool about it? I think there are a few things. I think one of the biggest things was the the do it yourself piece of it. Um, I think I feel I feel kind of like that even with people who do all sorts of other kind of homesteading kind of things right. like, oh, you know, you, you grew that and you preserve those things yourself. That's awesome. Yeah. Like how neat is yeah. that, that you took responsibility for that and figured out how to do this sort of, you know, more ancient or sort of traditional um, way of doing food. Um, so that do-it-yourself piece was a big part of it. And the authenticity, mm-hmm. I think that was what really spoke to me about it, that like you said, nothing nothing about the process for him was being shrouded or the shrouds right. that were there were sort of being lifted away mm-hmm. and he had to see and experience the the rawness of the reality of what it m- would mean to be a meat eater mm-hmm. um, and really taking full responsibility for that. So there's some, I don't know, emotional authenticity about that that yeah. I just thought like, whoa, that's, that's a bold thing to put yourself through to yeah. say like, I don't need to do this. I have total options to just, you know, forget about all of this and have people do this for me and get my meat in plastic packages and done. Um, but you're choosing the harder road on purpose in order to have a meaningful experience. And mm-hmm. I think that's something that resonated with me. So, so you needed to over- overcome that challenge or, or the, you needed to address the issue of, of, the animal's death and looking it in the eye and and how that works. Did Nick have anything like that for him? That was I need to I need to address this issue as as you were heading down that journey. Or was I'm trying to remember? I think he felt pretty similar to me actually about the the animal death piece. But though I'm I'm 
I tend to be the, a more sensitive, per, more emotional person, I think, about a lot of things. So I think he was a little bit less concerned about how I think he thought, well, you know, that's going to be the way it is. And I'm going to have to deal with that, but that I will. Right. Whereas I was like, I don't know. Can I deal with that? Am I going to freak out? <laughs> um, I don't really remember if he yeah. had particular concerns. I think I was so much in my own head at the time that, yeah, that right, th- those right. were the things that's yeah. long enough ago that I only really remember my own perspective. So you you come through that that stage of the process. You now like okay, I, I I'm I've I've you know addressed this head on. I think I can I think I can deal with that. Uh, what's the next thing you do after watching some YouTube videos? Yeah, we spent a <laughs> I, I can't really understate how much time we spent like sort of just wandering around on the internet, right. looking for information, trying to figure out what we were doing because we didn't have. We didn't know anyone really who could be there to teach us or walk us through things. Right. So we didn't have a mentor that was just kind of there to be our guide. Uh, We were going to try to do this ourselves. And so it was a big journey of just trying to piece together enough information to actually figure out how to do hunting. And that was a conscious decision on your part to say, we're going to be self-taught. We're not going to seek out a mentor. Yeah, it was a mostly conscious decision. Um, I don't know that there maybe would have been if there were mentorship programs where we were or not. I honestly didn't look. One of the biggest reasons that I didn't look, um, it's a pretty complicated reason actually about the fears I had about engaging with the hunting community. Mm-hmm. So sort of this cultural and an identity piece that I didn't feel like I was the sort of person who is supposed to hunt, Mm -hmm. that I wasn't going to fit in. I felt like a major outsider. I mean, like any new thing is going to be intimidating, but with hunting, I was just so worried about how I would be perceived by other hunters, um, by people at the gun shop, by people at the shooting range. I just felt like I am sort of the opposite of what a prototypical hunter should look like. And and so I, I didn't really have ways to disprove these stereotypes early on. And I admit now that, you know, I had some pretty exaggerated negative stereotypes, right. but I didn't have enough exposure to really know that that wasn't true. And I think that's sort of the cultural lore and maybe what you pick up from watching a little bit of hunting shows on TV as you're flipping through the channels, like, right. Ugh, this is like an old boys club yeah. and this is not supposed to be for me. So when you're doing your research, you're just trolling the web, you're Googling this, that, and the other hunting yeah. and go- looking at YouTube videos. What was the What was the most interesting and biggest surprise? And that could be either positive or negative? Yeah. I think the biggest surprise, well, it was a surprise at the time though. Now it's, now it's not surprising to me, but the biggest surprise at the time was the, was that everything that we found, almost everything that we found in books or in articles or in videos was created by seemingly people who had been hunting for a long time and created with the their intended audience being people who already hunt and right. have a lot of experience hunting. I was I was surprised that there didn't seem to be a lot of comprehensive information out there targeted toward new hunters. So a lot of the things I would encounter would be a little bit over my head. There'd be a lot of jargon. There would be a lot of assumptions taken for granted. Um, there were so many... St- 
super basic questions that I had. And I felt like I was starting, like I said tonight, starting from like square zero mm -hmm. that I, I like didn't know what I didn't know. So I didn't even know what to, to ask. And, um, there was all this terminology being thrown around and I was, I was surprised by sort of how inaccessible it felt. And this is coming from someone who, you know, I've been, I'm, I've been trained, part of my career is to be trained as a researcher, not a hunting researcher, but in general, one of the things that I've spent a lot of time on in sort of my academic life is learning how to seek out information and synthesize it and make sense of it and kind of get it from diverse sources. So it's like, well, if this is hard for me and this is like, you know, not dis too dissimilar from things I do in my, in my job my God, like what's going on? Am I missing something? Like, why is there no content out there for new hunters? Right, so, right. So how does you, you talk about your professional life a little bit. So, um, how does neuropsychology, which is the, the work you do, yes. uh, how does that help or inform your, the process of becoming a hunter? <laughs> That's such an interesting question. Um, okay. So being trained as, as a scientific researcher, like I just mentioned, was helpful and that it, it did make it, I think, a little bit easier to dig through information, to look through books, to, I don't know, I guess be trained to sort of try to piece things together. That was already pretty normal for me. So that was helpful. Neuropsychology mostly focuses on um, the health of, of brain functioning. It's pretty similar to neurology in a lot of ways. So maybe neuropsychology directly didn't inform too much about hunting, but being trained um, in psychology more generally, I think did help me in some ways, uh, mostly just in being able to be pretty cognizant of the connections between our thoughts and our emotions and our behaviors and thinking about how that applied to me. Mm -hmm. um, I was pretty aware of the fears that I had, and I had a lot of fears about hunting. I had a lot of uh, sort of expectations and assumptions and worries that were getting in my way. And it was pretty clear to me. I could see how they were getting in my way. Um, and I also knew that a lot of the things that I was afraid of, I was able to recognize that things I was afraid of, many of them, the fear was stemming a lot from lack of knowledge and a feeling of uncertainty. And so I had a decent hunch from things I know about psychology in general that those are two things that can easily create anxiety and worry right. in general. And so I had this idea, well, you know, it's probably that. And I, if I get some experience with this, it's, you know, a decent probability that it's actually not going to be as scary as I think it's going to be. And so having that frame of mind was helpful. So do you think exposure and, and um, exposure, just pure exposure and education are two of the, the best ways to, to address fears that, that might be big obstacles to hunting? Yeah, I, if, at least for me. I, yeah. A lot of it was like, I, I think I used this word earlier, but feeling like I wanted things to be demystified. Mm-hmm. Like someone to really break it down. So not just, oh, you're afraid of guns. Let's take you to the shooting range and you're going to go shoot it right now. Like that, actually, I would not you recommend would. that. <laughs> right. That might be like too much too fast for some people. It probably would have been too much too fast for me. Maybe for other people, it would have worked great. They're like, okay, good. I'll just get it over with. So right. I think there's a lot of individual variation there. Um, I wanted things to be really broken down and explained for me so that I could kind of digest it at my pace. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately having situations where 
I felt comfortable admitting how much I didn't know to mm-hmm, someone mm-hmm. and then being able to slowly get my answers and be able to get that exposure was huge. Right, and I right. think a lot of other new hunters have expressed similar wishes when I've talked to them about these things of, you know, wanting to have a place where they felt understood in their own internal struggles and worries they had about the process. So switching gears or taking to the next stage, when was the first time you shot a gun? The first time I shot a gun was probably sometime in 2010, I want to say. Was it a large gun, small caliber gun? The first thing I ever shot was a 22 okay. rifle. Okay. Um, great, own, great place to start. You, yeah. It actually wasn't my own. Okay. Um, the very first time that I shot a gun um, was actually Nick has a cousin and we were visiting his friends and his cousin. So, you know, to say I didn't know any hunters at this point in my life would actually not have been true because Nick has a couple of members of his family who have done some hunting here and there, um, some more than others. And his cousin had done some hunting and we were up visiting the extended family. And um, at that point, we were already a little bit curious. I think, I I can't remember if it was before or after hunter education, but this was during our curiosity phase. So Mm -hmm. we had expressed this curiosity Mm -hmm. and his cousin was like, well, great. Like, do you want to come? We can go, you know, outside and, you know, I know this place we can go shooting in the national forest. And we were like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So that, that for me was my very first initiation. And he was great because, you know, I was able to be pretty honest about my concerns and he was like, we're going to start you off really small, really basic. Um, and I was able to see like, okay, this isn't terrifying. Mm -hmm. Um, and I did actually shoot some other more powerful weapons that day and thought like, whoa, you know, (laughs) these are, these kind of knock your socks off. Um, but it was a little bit exciting. I felt like I'm not really, I can't imagine feeling ready to, to use this right. in any way as a tool, but I at least knew that I could hold one and I could shoot one and that I would be okay. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. was, a, that was huge. So you're, you're exploring, okay, now you've shot a gun, you decide, uh, you're going to go jackrabbit hunting. You decide you're going to buy a 22. Yep. You decide, what, is yep. that sort of yeah. those yeah. together? Decide yeah, we're going to buy okay. a 22. That yeah. was where we started. Like, okay, I need to learn how to shoot. This is going to take a while. Uh, <laughs> and so it was probably, it was jackrabbit hunting. It wasn't even for a couple more years after that. Really? Okay. Yeah. So did you buy a gun soon after shooting then? I did. Or, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So I bought a 22. Yeah. Um, Nick bought a 22. Yeah. And we would go to the shooting range and just Matching his started. his and hers, <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> just started to try to figure it out. We would watch YouTube videos about marksmanship yeah. and then go to the range and try to do it. And we would watch each other and try to, you know, try to notice things as right. in our sort of the best amateur way we could. Like, oh, I think you might, you know, be really tense right now. Like, you know, try to analyze it as best we could, even though we really didn't know what we were doing. So let me ask you this. You, you consciously made a decision not to have a mentor. You decided to do it together. How important was that aspect of it, of your journey, of you being able to do it together and to bounce ideas off each other, thoughts, concerns, um, as well as like you just said, you know, you're out shooting the gun. Okay, you know what? I think you're not down. You don't have your cheek on the the stock in the right way or something. It was so helpful. I I really can't overstate, I think, at least for me, how helpful it was to have Nick to do this with and to be able to work on it together. Um, he is great at 
researching and learning things on his own. He had, you know, has successfully used the internet to figure out how to rebuild an old car. So he had a lot of experience with do-it-yourself things yeah. in general. So he was had this like, sort of exuded this confidence of like we can do this, and that was really helpful because I was sort of like I don't think we can do this. <laughs> I'm like, always skeptical about all of these things, um, and he is always confident that like we can make this work. And yeah. so early on, that was a huge help. And then being able to have someone just to go through the process with mm-hmm. and be able to encourage each other. And, you know, when one person is discouraged or annoyed about something that didn't go right, the other person would be like, well, you know, it's going to be okay. And to be able to bounce that off each other, it, it was a lot. We already felt really isolated. So at least having another person to do it with, you know. I can't I imagine doing it on my own. Absolutely. No, I think it's a critical piece and something that I think is really important. I think one of the biggest barriers if either having a mentor or finding a mentor or at minimum somebody else that you can go through this process together, like you yeah. said. I think I think that social component is, is critical. Yeah, yeah. So you buy 22. Yep. Both of you. New. Yep. You start going to the range. Yep. Okay. Getting confident, more confident in your marksmanship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, let's go find some bunnies or what? Yeah, basically. So in, in between those two points, we actually moved from where we were living in the San Francisco area down to San Diego. So there was sort of a little gap there where we didn't do a whole lot because we had just moved and Nick had just started graduate school. And so, you know, life was, we were kind of getting adjusted to our new way of life. Um, but after that, after we got really settled in San Diego, that's when we started to think, you know, maybe it's actually time for us to go out and give this a try. I think for such a long time, I kept thinking, you know, we're not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. We need to do more research. We need to do more reading. I'm not ready yet. And just really put off going out into the field, which... You know, I look back and it's like that when I talk to new hunters, I explicitly tell them to not do what I did, not to wait so long. (laughs) Just do it. Just go. Yeah. Well, I think I felt like I had to have everything in place and then I was going to go hunt. And 99% of hunting is not killing something. I mean, 99, maybe 0.9% of hunting is like being a naturalist, finding animals, Mm -hmm. being able to read the land, being comfortable being outside. All of those skills I could have started to do. I didn't. You don't have to bring your weapon. But I felt like I had to have everything in place. And only then could I think about actually going hunting. Yeah, I get that. I tend to do that with certain things, too. So I totally know what you mean. But you're right. I mean, squeezing the trigger is one-tenth of one percent of it. Exactly. That's, I always say, the difference. A lot of people think of hunters, I think, as they think of shooters, and, mm-hmm. and and they don't understand that it's really a very small component of the whole thing, but it's it's where the focus ends up a lot. Yeah, and for all the reading that we did, it, you know, that was vital, but the most learning was actually being out in the field. Right. And so, I, in retrospect, I wish that I'd started that part earlier of just going out there and trying to understand what it would be like to sit still and observe the things around me and okay, see you, the animals. You, you got a quick share of your camel story with the oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's jumping ahead a little bit to okay. when we started hunting for okay. deer, okay. but I'm happy to go there. Okay, just because it's, it's, a, it's a good humorous story. Yeah. So, you know, we did start hunting with jackrabbits, and we were able to be some, have some success in that, and that was great, and it taught us a lot of foundational skills, and we were like, okay, we can translate this into deer hunting. And so that was a pretty big leap, you know, new equipment, new species, new all these things. 
very early on in the process when we had decided to do this, we were like, okay, you know, we need to get our, our gear for, for deer hunting. And so we decided to buy camouflage for the first time. And we bought these, um, like this, they're called like the 3D leafy suits, like mm-hmm. the the ones that you know have they got the, the like little, little fringes yeah. on them yeah they flutter in the wind exactly um and they really do a nice job of at least to the human eye making you look like a bush if you just sit there or maybe like a swamp monster or something like that <laughs> uh but we got these and we were like so excited about them it's like okay this is so great we're gonna be invisible this is gonna be perfect we're gonna get these and like this is this is the solution we're gonna be able to find these deer no problem they're never gonna be able to know that we're there so we get this thing in the mail and we're all excited and we're like, okay, we got to go test this out. So we, we grab them, we go up to the mountains and find this uh, meadow that just in, like intuitively seems like good deer habitat. We have no idea what we're doing. We're like, well, this looks nice. If I were a deer, I'd want to live here. So we go up there and we're like, great, this is the spot. So we put on our camouflage, we hike straight through the meadow to the center, find this rocky outcropping and just sit on top of it and just sort of wait for the sun to set because that that's the magical time when all the deer just appear and in your magical camel yeah. exactly so we sit there and we wait and as the sun starts to set slowly seemingly out of nowhere we start to get surrounded by this like huge herd of cows that <laughs> happened to be living apparently in this meadow that we didn't know about but they didn't see us though which was the best part so we're like yes the camouflage worked this is great like we nailed it we just chose the wrong spot so <laughs> We're like, okay. You know, the deer had come so close to us that eventually we were whispering to each other, like, should we do something? (laughs) Oh, sorry, the cows. (laughs) Like, should we, should we do something? Should we like, they don't know we're here, I think. Um, And that's how we knew that they really didn't see us because then Nick stood up and they all scattered everywhere and we're like, whoa, yes, we did it. So anyway, we decided that we had just messed up and we chose the wrong place. So we then repeated this routine for weeks, actually, where we would go and we'd find a place that looked really promising and we'd spend kind of the afternoon like walking all around all over it, checking it out, looking for deer sign. And then as soon as, you know, the sun started to begin to set, we would find a spot and sit down and just like put on our camel and think that we were totally invisible and just wait for the deer to come. And we did this over and over again. And despite the fact that we would be surrounded by deer tracks and deer trails and deer poop, we would never see a deer. Never. And so we were just, for a while, we were like, okay, we're just, we're not picking the right places. But eventually, for doing this enough and seeing all the sign, you're like, okay, there's there's got to be something that we're doing wrong. Like, is the camo not good? Like, what's our problem? Um, eventually, of course, you realize that you know, deer also have a sense of smell that is, in fact, extremely good and that they're not stupid and so we were you know traipsing around all over the place and totally ignoring the wind and effectively advertising our presence with our own scent just to every creature in the area so of course they weren't just sort of showing up and that that's something that we laugh about a lot because we wasted so much time doing this it's like like i want to say on the order of months which is pretty embarrassing um i'm just like what are we doing wrong like what is our problem Uh, and realizing that there's a lot more to deer hunting than camouflage uh and a lot a lot that we don't know that you know maybe if we had been working with a mentor we might have learned that on day one if the mentor had been out in the field with us and be like well the wind is coming from this direction so let's move over here be like the wind what does that have anything to do with it so there's a lot we had to learn that's a great example i mean obviously a hard lesson (laughs) 
but I think, uh, you know, uh, a non-hunter doesn't understand, and it's not, that's a great example, something that's not really discussed of where people don't understand how sensitive the senses are of, of, of a deer, as an example, and how, I mean, I've been out many times where I can hear a deer coming through thick woods, and it's coming, I'm going to have a great shot here, I've got an opportunity, all of a sudden the wind shifts catches your scent and it's gone and it's such subtle little things like that that make it really challenging you know it's not just easy jump out of your truck go get something and boom and 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 haul it out it can it can be very challenging with all those all those things yeah absolutely it it, it, you know we ended up learning that paying attention to the wind was one of the most important things that we could do on any particular hunt to the point that once we'd figured this out we started to see a lot more animals we started to say like well the wind is coming from this direction today. So this means that we should probably go to this particular trailhead because the other trailhead's not going to work, right, you know, right. because it's not going to be right for where we're trying to get to. Yeah, yeah. Um, and realizing that we couldn't just have one standard plan. We had to have all these contingency plans based mm-hmm. on things like that, right. that we wouldn't have realized we had to take into account. But yeah, hunting's complicated. <laughs> It is. It is. There's a lot of challenges. So, so I jumped ahead and uh, th- th- wanted you to tell the, the camo story. But going back for a moment, um, so you go out to hunt jackrabbits and yeah. uh, you get one. We get one. You get one. And so how, how was that? I mean, so now you've, you know, gone through the process of, of actually killing something. Yeah. Was it, was it uh, more difficult, less difficult than you thought it would be in terms of coming upon the animal and, and actually going through the process of, of, you know, gutting it, skinning it, et cetera? Or? At that point, I really felt well prepared. Like yeah. I said, we waited so Great. long to go and do this until I was like, okay, we're so ready. We have everything covered. Um, and Nick is actually the one, I, I wanted him to be the one to take the first shot. I think that was my way of, I'm I'm not quite ready. I want to still be a little bit the observer in this situation yeah. and, and sort of take it step by step. And so yeah. he was the one who fought, uh, shot the first jackrabbit and it it was kind of as I expected it to be. It wasn't. It wasn't crazy or traumatizing. Yeah. It was. It was exactly what I yeah. thought it was going to be. And you know, we got the animal. We brought it back to uh, where we had parked the truck, kind of on the side of the road. And then we're like, okay, well now we have to skin it. Um, and this is the part. This is another story I love where. You know, we had done all this research, and so we actually had preloaded onto one of our cell phones a video that we downloaded from YouTube <laughs> of some guy at some like some Department of Natural Resources somewhere. I forget yeah. what state he was from, but he was yeah. great, showing you how to how to skin and you know field dress a jackrabbit step by step. A great explanation. So we had this on one of our phones, and so you know we have the jackrabbit hanging, and Nick has the knife, and he's making these cuts, and I'm holding up the phone, and you know. <laughs> play the video he knew the thing pause okay rewind play the video oh, no go back no. to that part show me that part again where is he holding the knife and so it was we literally were just completely like that was our mentor in that moment was this little guy in his youtube video thank you to that guy whoever you are whoever out you there are. like thank you That's um that really encapsulates how we did a lot of our learning how to hunt it was kind of doing things like that yeah. um same thing when we started deer hunting we would drive out to our deer hunting spot um and oftentimes in the car on the way there 
one of us would be playing a video that we had downloaded, like uh, like Randy Newberg's gutless method was one that I right. think we watched over and over. We wanted, we were like rehearsing this. Well, just in case we get one this weekend, let's review how you're supposed to break it down. <laughs> That's like the best we could do. Right. Is try to emulate what we'd seen um, and sort of use that as virtual mentorship. So once you uh, once you skinned out the rabbit, did you uh, did you cook it right away or did you freeze it, cook it later? We cooked it right you, away. You we yeah. made uh, jackrabbit stew. Okay. Very first meal. And how was it? It was great. Yeah. I was surprised actually how much it tasted like beef. Hmm. The jackrabbits are different. I mean, they're hairs, so it's not like a cottontail. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a much darker be- uh, meat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought it tasted a lot like beef. Mm. It was yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. well, that's great. Um, okay. And you, had, you said... You, you mentioned earlier that um, you would encourage new hunters to start with small game versus yeah. diving right into into large animal hunting, correct? You found that that was good for you. You like that. For me, that was so helpful. Um, I had said tonight, you know, I don't think it's wrong for a new hunter to just go straight for deer hunting. Like, if you want to do that, go for it. More power to you. I didn't feel ready for that. That felt too high stakes. Small game hunting was really nice because the pressure felt a little bit lower. Mm -hmm. Where we were living at the time in Southern California, there actually was not even a jackrabbit season. There were very limited restrictions on jackrabbits, I guess. It's a very yeah, very stable population. So that was that was great because we had we could really do this at our own pace. We didn't have to wait for the three weeks of the year when they would when the season would be open. and so being able to do that and practice more often was really nice. And it was small game was good because we didn't need that much gear. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were plentiful and not that hard to find. And so it gave us a really good chance to just hone some of those skills early on, figure out how to shoot accurately under pressure. It's really different than shooting at the range. When you have an animal in your, in your sights, that's right. real different than looking at a bullseye target. And so having to make that transition, I'm glad that I took the opportunity to do that with jackrabbits before I started to even think about mule deer hunting, which yeah. is where we eventually got to. Yeah. So you, you, you decided um, where you're living at this at this point when you said, so you've, you did you shoot a... It, Okay, Nick shoots a jackrabbit. Do you shoot one then after that? Do you go out and get one or not? I've actually, I took shots on them, but okay. I never actually managed to get one. Okay. Yeah. Um, so all the jackrabbits that we got were actually all of Nick's shots. Nick's shots, yeah. So I was pretty comfortable with all of the mechanics and yeah. the ideas, but I guess I just was not able to execute that well. Right, right. <laughs> But you're so, but you're comfortable with it at this yeah. point. And you're like, okay, I'm re- I'm ready to I'm ready to go for big game now. And you've got mule deer in the area. Yes. Do you, did you also have whitetails or, or just mule deer? In just the area? mule deer. Okay. Okay. And so um, you make the decision. How long ago was this when you decided to go? Deer I think hunting? our first season must have been 2013. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 2013. So, yeah. Four years ago, so you go out and now now you're you're hunting an animal that has a season. And did you go out early season or did you go out mid season? Do you remember? So we decided our method was we had realized at this point that learning to hunt was all about trial and error, yeah. and that the more time we spend in the field, the more we learned. Yeah. And so we just applied this principle to deer hunting and decided to like divide and conquer. So Nick decided that he would take up archery. 
as okay. his primary weapon. And I would take up rifle, which would allow us to basically, if we combined all of those seasons, early archery, rifle season, and late archery, that we could essentially string together almost three months of deer hunting. So we realized that we realized that that's what we needed. Yeah. We knew that archery was going to be low probability. Yeah. I mean, op- yeah. Open country Absolutely. mule deer archery is so, yeah. so challenging. Um, but there was a chance. And so we thought, you know, we need every chance we can get because this is going to take a while. We're going to have a lot we need to figure out. Yeah. So that was kind of nice where we could take on these different roles. And depending on which season it was, one person would be the shooter. The other person would be there to be support and the yeah. spotter and all that. So yeah. it was nice from the team perspective too. So you go out archery hunting um, in the mountains in California? Is that is Yeah, that kind yeah. of in the de- desert mountains. Okay, yeah. So sort of a transition zone between the, they're still mountains, but a transition zone between the highest mountains and the desert floor. So sure. sort of this middle zone. So you do early archery season, don't get a deer, no. right? No. Um, uh, rifle season comes along yeah. and it's your turn. Yeah. Well, our whole first season was a complete bust. I'll just, really? I'll just cut to the chase right there. <laughs> that whole first season was kind of what I talked about a few minutes ago with that camo story where yeah. we spent the whole season, whole season trying to figure out how to see a deer. I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> we finally started seeing deer some of the last weekends of the season okay. after extensive trying. Did you enjoy the process nonetheless? We did enjoy it yeah. a lot. Yeah, we yeah, yeah. loved it. That's great. Yeah. I mean, and that's, again, a great example of where you have to, a person I think needs to approach it and understand what it is. And I love how you took your time to get into it. But by the time you arrived at these key milestones, these key you know new chapters that you're opening deer hunting now, you're enjoying that whole process. It's not about, oh, I'm, I'm bummed because I didn't pull the trigger. It's it's no, you know, you're learning all along the way. And, and uh, even though you're not seeing seeing the deer or getting, a, getting an opportunity for a shot. Yeah, I mean, there were moments that were very frustrating. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I'm not going to lie. Sure, absolutely. Um, but in general, it was... It was really fun, and we liked the challenge in some way. It was trying to figure out. It was frustrating and kind of like, oh, God, why can't we figure this out? But yeah. that was also exciting. Like, well, there must be something that we're doing wrong that we just haven't realized yet. And so let's try to put our heads together and figure out what that is. And it was just so pleasant to spend I, – I love the desert. The desert is probably one of my favorite places. So to spend a lot of time out in that environment – it. It changes your perspective a lot, um, especially the desert. I think a lot of people might look at it from afar and be like, well, there's nothing there. It's a wasteland. You know, it's just a bunch of sand and rocks. But when you start spending a lot of time there and sitting really quietly there, there's so much that you'll see. And so I started to appreciate, I think, the the depth and the richness of the desert in particular in a way that I might not have if I hadn't had to spend so much time failing at deer hunting. <laughs> well, that, and that is the thing, I think, with, with hunting is the nature of the activity requires you to be out for long periods of time in nature. And you naturally, because of that, and to be quiet, to be quiet and still, you naturally see 
sides and parts of nature that you would never see otherwise. I think that's just a really important component. It's a rewarding component, uh, you know, to it. Yeah. And so... There's this one moment that I'll always remember, and it's so funny because it's such a it's such a silly tiny thing. But there was this one time where we were out in the desert, and, and this is this is desert. I mean, not a lot, of, mostly cacti, really small desert shrubs and things like that. But it had it had rained, I think, for uh, quite a lot, maybe for like a few days or the few weeks prior to when we were out. And there was this one morning where we were creeping around as usual, trying to find a spot to look for deer in the really early morning. And I came across a tiny mushroom growing out of the sand. Like, what? Wow, wow. I didn't even know that was possible. Right, it was right. one of those things that was like, this is so rare and so cool it probably just sprouted right. i don't know somehow because of the rain that just happened probably gone Tiny. in 12 hours oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> like this is yeah this yeah. is like this incredible transient strange moment wow. um which is like again okay great you saw a mushroom in the desert but for me that was like the best part of my day right right so yeah i think yeah just you appreciate things that you, it, it requires you to slow down to connect to observe and when you do that, I think it's, I think you're rewarded immensely with something that, you know, somebody from the outside may look at it, like you said, and say, oh, big deal, you saw a mushroom. But I think it's just perspective. And, and, and it's, it's, uh, that's great. I love hearing, hearing stories like that. So you, first season, bust. First season's bust. Okay. But we Second, learned a ton. We learned a ton. Second season's coming around. You're like, okay, same strategy. Archery and, and rifle. Same strategy. Okay, yeah, yep. yep, exactly. So again, archery no is a bust on the first season? It is a bust, although um, had a cool. Nick got to have a cool experience of actually getting pretty close to a deer. Um, he had a—it was interesting because he had a tag that at the time he would have allowed him to you shoot. Should, uh, you should uh, describe yeah. what a tag is for those who are listening who don't know what it is. Yeah. This is like one of those words, yeah. You, you you had a friend yes ask you that question, right? Yes, I've had numerous friends where I started to tell these stories. They're like, "What's a tag?" And I was like, "Oh, right, right. I'm so sorry." <laughs> so even someone like me, who is still relatively new hunter on the spectrum of things and writes a lot of things for new hunters, I still sometimes forget or just sort of slip into a mode where um, I'm not aware that what I'm saying is jargon. It's jargon, absolutely. Yep. The lingo. I, I do the same thing. Yeah, so deer hunting is full of permits, and you have to have a permit to hunt a particular, you know, uh, gender of deer, male or female, has to be of a certain size or a certain age, and only can, can only be through certain dates. And it, it's complicated because there's a bunch of different permits, and sometimes you can have more than one, and they can overlap. So anyway, to make a long story short, Nick had a permit that at that moment would have allowed him to shoot with his bow a male deer, a buck. <clears throat> But the next day was the opening day of a season for another permit that would have allowed him to also shoot a doe, a female deer, with his bow. So there's a difference of a day. And he, we saw this doe that was actually bedded down. So she was laying down, sort of resting, which is a great place to find deer because seeing a deer on the move it's very complicated to try to figure out how to get close to one but if it's hanging out and it's resting it's bedded down you have a chance that maybe you can sneak around and get close to it and 
we didn't know, often it's very common to see a doe with a buck, at least where we were, we'd see that all the time, um, or to see a doe with multiple other does. And so we couldn't really know what else was over there. And so kind of for practice, but kind of also on a hope that, you know, maybe there could be a buck over there, Nick decided to actually attempt to put a stock on, mm-hmm. uh, to sneak up yeah, on yeah. this deer. And he actually did it. And it turned out that there wasn't a buck there. But he was able to get within what for him would have been a comfortable shooting range on that doe. And, you know, obviously couldn't take the shot, didn't take the shot. But that was such a cool experience of like, well, in theory... He could. He knew that he could do it, mm-hmm. and he got to have this really cool up close and personal experience. So archery wow. was a bust, but it also felt successful yeah, in a absolutely. way, even though there was yeah, no there no, was no absolutely. harvest. Yeah, no. What a wonderful experience. Yeah. So then rifle season comes around. Then rifle season comes around. So that's me. Um, You're on. <laughs> I'm the shooter. We the the first the first weekend of the rifle season, I was my hopes were so high. We had thought we had this great spot. We thought that there was a good chance there were going to be deer there. We got in the night before the opening day. So we had a day to sort of check things out. And that night, the night before the opening day, we saw a beautiful buck. Just phenomenal. Amazing. Like, okay, great. All we have to do is go to sleep, wake up in the morning, and he's going to still be there, and then we're done. This is, this is like the best thing in the world. Um so I went to bed that night just like dreaming of this shot that I was going to take in the morning and planning out my hypothetical stock and all that. And we wake up that morning well before dark. And soon enough, we start to maybe catch a glimpse of some movement. Turns out that it's a bunch of other hunters who are just walking straight through the area where the deer was. And then we see more hunters up on the ridge and then hunters walking straight across to the point that they almost almost literally walked into us and they didn't know that we were there. And so we were like, okay, great. We had thought we had this great plan, but we're clearly not far enough away from the road. So that was kind of disappointing. So we then had to spend the next few weeks trying to figure out where else we were going to go because the place we thought we were going to hunt turned out to be too crowded. So it so took you're, us. You're obviously hunting public land. Hunting out public land. Yeah. Yep. Um, BLM land, Bureau okay. of Land Management, yeah. out in Southern California. Yeah. And yeah, it was it was it was an easy hike in. So it was it was accessible. Right. right. It was not hard to get there. Yeah. They said there's a statistic once I heard. I, I forget exactly what it was, but I, it's surprising um, how larger percentage of hunters are within i want to say especially in the midwest like 500 yards of the nearest road wow so all you need to do when people are griping about oh it's just overcrowded etc is put some time in and, mm-hmm. and get back so that's what you two did that's you, what we did and so you looked at did you continue to look at public you're looking at blm similar region but actually but just, the exact same same area okay we just needed to go f- deeper Okay, yeah. So instead of going a mile in, now we were going three miles in. Okay. So just like, okay, we're going to take this, this, that same principle and apply that to what's going on. And most people probably aren't going to want to go this far. So we're going to go far enough where we, to, we would need, reasonably need to backpack, to, to actually camp out okay. there okay. to get away from the people who might just be hunting from their trucks for the day, which yeah. is, you know, 
what a lot of people do. Absolutely. So we're like, well, we're just going to yeah. go, we're going to go harder and yeah. maybe that will, will work. Yeah. Uh, so we spend some time, a lot of time looking at Google Maps, trying to look at, you know, the aerial view and try to figure out where is a good spot. In the desert, you know, one of the biggest questions is where are the deer getting their water? Mm -hmm. So we try to look a lot and think like, could there, where is there a spring maybe? We could get close to that. And so spending a lot of time pouring over those, trying to find a new location. We actually eventually did find a good location, but it took a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So you you hiked back on on a weekend or weekday or mm -hmm. what? And, and you yeah, said it was it's, like a long you, weekend. Yeah. And so you 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 found your area and then you you set up camp. So you did you did yes. camp overnight. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That yeah. was Fun. that was typically how at that point how we were doing our deer hunting. Okay. Where we would go to a place, camp, set up camp, and then hunt for a couple of days out of that camp, and then hike back out and head home. So. So how many? How many times did you do that before you encountered a deer? To that spot? Well, to that or spot or doing, yeah, in general, I guess going out, like I'm thinking the second yeah. season, did you go out one, two, three weekends and then on the fourth you yeah, saw a deer? Yeah, it must have been, I don't remember exactly. It, it was something like that. It was either, the, I, I kind of thought it was the last weekend of the season, but okay. Nick that said that he thinks it's the second to last weekend <laughs> okay. of the season. So it was near yeah. the end of, okay. the, of the season yeah. um, when we actually saw another deer we might have saw a couple does here and there but i didn't have it I, my my tag or my permit was only for a buck okay. for rifle season so okay. does were, were uh, exciting yeah, yeah, beautiful yeah, yeah. but uh, not going to be what i needed so it wasn't until this final weekend of hunting where we actually saw another buck okay so it comes along and yeah it comes along and i was really really lucky we were i think set up in a really nice spot on this slope overlooking this really deep basin that had a lot of these natural palm groves it almost certainly spring fed so we knew that there was water way down there yeah. um and it turned out that you know as our predictions would have had it that deer seemed to like to spend some time down there and so we felt like yes we finally figured it out like this is a pretty good place and so we were on this slope you know in the early morning before the sun rose the sun did rise and these three deer were down there a buck uh, as well as a doe and her fawn actually so this trio was kind of traveling together yeah. and we knew at this point that if we were to try to move and get close to them while they were up and alert that that was like a pure recipe for failure because that's what sort of we'd tried to do in some of our other encounters is try to get close to deer that we would see from mm -hmm. a distance and they would always spot us mm -hmm. from hundreds and hundreds of yards away and then they'd just be gone yeah. so we're like okay this morning we're just gonna sit here and we're gonna wait maybe they will lay down maybe then we can plan a route around them but for now we're just gonna watch and I got really lucky because they actually just started slowly over time to wander up in our direction and actually got close enough, got within range that I was able to take a shot from where I was sitting. Great. That's, uh, that's awesome. Was it, um, so did you, had you bought a gun? Your yes. Own? Okay. What did you yeah. buy? For deer hunting? Yeah, for deer hunting. Yeah, Not the so, 22 you weren't using the 22 version. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I uh, 25 out 6. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good gun. Yeah. I like so it. you were comfortable with it at this point? I was. Squeeze. Spent a lot of time at the range. Yeah. Had to get over 
a lot of sort of flinching, yeah, pulling the trigger. That was that was a big thing that I dealt with early on. It's just that the power. I mean, for me, I don't know. I, I'm a relatively petite person, so it just it felt like a lot for me. Um, and the 25 out six is certainly not not the most powerful gun that I could have shot, but uh, even that, it still was quite a jarring jump from the 22, and so it took a lot of practice before I felt comfortable enough being accurate enough yeah yeah but yeah so it was a good experience it was a great experience yeah. i mean that that it was extremely challenging but yeah. one of the best most rewarding things i've ever done yeah oh that's uh, that's that's great and uh did you uh did you make a meal right away with that with that animal too Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Um, almost, uh, probably the next day or the day after. The day that I sh- was successful and was able to shoot that buck was I was awake for about 24 hours straight that day. So I shot the deer in the morning. We then had to break it down in the field, get it into our backpacks, hike it up out of this basin, up, you know, lots of feet of elevation, three miles to the car. By the time we got back to the car, it was evening. Yeah. By the time we got home, it was nighttime. And then I I just couldn't go to sleep until I felt like I had taken care of that meat, like trimming it and cleaning it and packaging it in some way so that I felt like it was good and done and safe. And so it was like 5 a.m. before I went to bed. Did you find, you know, and that's hard work, processing the deer after, did you find enjoyment in it though it was interesting i was so exhausted that it was it's like one of those i don't know you know when you stay up for that long you get in this weird state where you no longer feel tired you just feel really weird and so (laughs) so i was in i think that state for a lot of like almost like this trance-like state of just i'm going through the motions i'm doing this thing i'm running on almost no energy but yet i have to keep going yeah um, but learning how to process a whole animal was really cool. And it was nice to have had some practice from the jackrabbits. The anatomy is incredibly similar, just scaled up a lot for deer. So I knew generally the muscle groups and what I was looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be that up close and personal to all the pieces and sort of see the evolution of whole creature down to like a roast yeah. was fascinating yeah 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 that's i i love that process to me going from field all the way to 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 making a meal is just there are a few things that are that rewarding in in life so um what's your next hunt gonna be well i'm living in boston now that's right so a little bit harder yeah 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 are you are you thinking you're gonna try to try to do something on the, on the East Coast area, do you think you would tr- you would want to do that, or what what are you yeah, thinking? Yeah, we've debated that. So right now we're in Boston for professional reasons, yeah. basically, and it's a, we're thinking of it as a pretty temporary move. So yeah. we're probably only going to be here for another two years, um, and then that's it. So we debated a lot this question of should we should we take the time to invest in right. learning a whole new hunting strategy, um, new gear new kind of deer. Plus, you know, the the thing we were a little bit disappointed about in moving to the East Coast was learning about what a big deal Lyme disease is out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's in Massachusetts, in that area, it is, wow. We had no idea. It's bad too, yeah. 
We had no idea. And that's not really something we had to take into account in California. So we're like, okay, there are all these factors that are making this seem like it's going to be a little bit more difficult, a little bit less appealing, and it's not somewhere that we're planning to settle. So we haven't done anything yet. This last year was, time-wise, it was actually impossible because of the different professional commitments that we had. I was... I'd, weekends were totally out of the question. I was working all the time. Uh, not the most fun year. Yeah. But I think at this point we're thinking that we're going to continue to try to focus on hunting out west, see yeah. if we can take a couple of trips out there, and we're planning to try to move back west okay. after we get out of Boston. Okay. So I'd like to go mule deer hunting again as soon as I can. Awesome, awesome. Do you have any meat left in the freezer? Or? No. No, it's all gone. <laughs> no. We did get some. Um, we have beef from actually a local farm out in western Massachusetts okay. to sort of tide us over. Right. Um, because I, I, I think I do feel a lot better physically when I have meat in my diet regularly. So, if I, you know, once the venison ran out, we had to sort of right. like, oh, okay, what are we going to do for a stopgap? And yeah. so that seemed to be a pretty good option. And hopefully we can at some point get to the point where we can provide all of our own meat just from hunting. Yeah. So that's the ultimate goal. That's that's a that's a good goal. That's a high bar. That's a, yeah. That, that is. Uh, I, I think that's that's a great goal to have if you can do it. Well, keep us posted on the journey as you continue. And thanks so much for for sitting down and talking through this. Yeah, uh, we'll do. Tonight. This was a total blast. Thanks for having me. You bet. Well, there you have it, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Robin Migliarini. Make sure you go to modcarn.com forward slash podcast two. That's modcarn.com forward slash podcast two to see the show notes uh, and links to Robin's website where you can buy the Mindful Carnivore by Tovar Ceruli and other items from this episode. And if you would be so kind as to go give us a rating on iTunes, whether you liked it or not, that would be great. And if you do like it, make sure you tell your friends. Thanks for listening to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. You can continue the journey by going to modcarn.com.